that goes into what's happening mm. today. They say, oh, do undo- children of undocumented immigrants even deserve to be citizens? Mm-hmm. So, like, you're never fully part of this space, even if you have kind of all the boxes checked off. Welcome to the Nuest or South podcast. This is where we talk about being Latinos. No, Latinas. No, 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 Latinx. In the South. This is for us, y'all. The history in this episode is based on the book Corazón de Dixie by Julie M. Wise. I'm Axel. I'm Daisy. And I'm Brian. And we're Latino students in the South. And we are your hosts. Today, our episode will focus on a majority black agricultural area that was west of Memphis, Tennessee, near the Mississippi Delta that we talked about in our last episode. Uh, Axel here would tell us about what this area of the U.S. looked like, where Mexicans were going and where they were staying. Yeah, so we're talking about a period of where Jim, strict Jim Crow segregation was, was still around, and particularly in the South. And uh, during this time, the Mexican government and the U.S. government had decided to enact an agreement, basically, to have farm laborers come to the U.S. Um, from 1942, and it lasted till 1964. Now... With these like Jim Crow conditions and like uh, farm workers' rights being completely neglected, uh, where did these farm workers have to go to? Who could they lean on? Yeah, so there were about four million who had come total to the U.S. during those years, and um, particularly in this Delta area that we were talking about in Arkansas, there were about three hundred thousand, and so all those really kind of in the 1950s resorted to the Mexican government. And in this particular case, we have Angel Cano, who is a kind of veteran in Mexican's foreign service. And in the 1950s, he settled his office in Memphis, Tennessee, and he served this population as someone who was fighting for their, basically the agreements that they had set her on, uh, collecting unpaid wages, uh, work, you know, resorting to helping workers get the actual living conditions that they had uh, been basically promised and uh, just in general being an advocate for those Mexican nationals who were in the U.S. working as braceros at the time. So tell us about Angel Cano, Axel. Yeah, so specifically Angel Cano was this representative of the Mexican consulate. He had been a career Mexican foreign service person uh, for over 30 years and in 1950s, he decided to move his office from Dallas to Memphis, Tennessee, which was really close to this Arkansas area. Where there was a concentration of bracero workers, which was what the Mexican men recruited in this period to work in the U.S. were called. So he had, over this time that he was there, he had this like reputation of defending fellow Mexican nationals who were working as braceros in the area. So he fought to take up any partition that they really brought up if it was like a bad working conditions living conditions wage theft and discrimination in the area against them so as really what kind of distinguished this population and their relationship with Angel Cano was that they were Mexican nationals and many of them just from wherever they were coming from and the environment that had existed in the in Mexico was that they were citizens of this place they were citizens of somewhere and so angel cano's role was in really defending those rights that these individuals still had despite being 
you know, away from their home. And um, the office regularly collected unpaid wages. Cano uh, responded to any petition that they came. He was actually very successful in blacklisting uh, farmers who did not abide by contracts that they had agreed to in regards to the braceros. Okay, and so you're saying he was effective in kind of like um, getting these Mexicanos in the Arkansas Delta unpaid wages and, and things like that? Or was he just like bringing these complaints forward and then not seeing much results? No, uh, Cano, Angel Cano was, was very active. Um, but that is to say that there was also a very active worker population. I think, you know, there was a distinction of how they saw themselves and what they were coming. There were expectations from them coming from Mexico and saying we're braceros and this, this is what they've agreed to give us. And when that didn't happen, uh, they really did see for a period of time, let's say, for example, Angel Cano as someone who was going to respond to their, to, their, to their petitions, to their asks and requests. At one point, um, some of them walked for almost 100 uh, miles to Memphis to get his uh, some results. A lot of them would call. Uh, there were so many petitions given in, about like two or three people at a time. But it was still a challenge to be able to confront the farmers. And once the Mexican government's role in kind of keeping this Bracero program uh, online started dwindling, uh, he managed to last for a bit more in the Memphis, Arkansas uh, area. But eventually, farmers and the U.S. government allowing more undocumented workers to come into these farm worker areas basically undermined the power that consuls or the Mexican government had to blacklist farmers for discrimination and all these other terrible working conditions that some of them faced. And what specifically do you mean by blacklisting? What does that mean for... Yeah, so blacklisting was basically that for bracero, for a farmer to hire a bracero, they had to basically go through the Mexican government. And so they had to apply for them. And then once they, they, they were approved, they would have a certain contract to say, this is what we're going to do. When that wasn't met, what would happen was that if there was a petition, Angel Cano would say, you can no longer have workers. Now, there was some challenge in this because sometimes the workers didn't necessarily want to leave. And it was, it was, it was a struggle to get kind of those blacklisted farmers to have no Mexican workers in order to be able to enforce uh, to get their wages, which at the time some of them had agreed it was... Um, $3. It was like $3. The, mm -hmm. It was a contract... And, um, and and so eventually, or for some towns, actually, there was this town called Mark Tree, which had, uh, there were some of these businesses that had no Mexicans in their, in their, in their, like the front of their doors and the openings. And really they didn't serve anyone. And so in those situations where discrimination was really prevalent against Mexicans, um, the consuls or the government officials would really actively try to blacklist the farmers in the area and push them to be more, I guess, accepting of Mexicanos there. Okay, interesting. So you're saying Angel Cano, like this representative of the Mexican government, was fighting for not just unpaid wages and like these sorts of economic rights, but also, I guess, tied to those rights were also social rights? Because it's like if they if the braceros couldn't access or if they faced like discrimination trying to access like restaurants or stores or things like that, that would then hurt the farm owners that were employing those braceros. 
right? Yeah, or... definitely. I mean, and it was because, uh, like, like I mentioned before, it was really about you. You have some rights as a as a as a human being, and it was you know less so from like earlier in the history <laughs> of like Mexicanos having to either identify, create their own selves and own Mexicanidad. Uh, it was about having at least some level of representation. You weren't stateless. You weren't a person who had, you know, who was working there but had no representation in Congress in the lo local spaces. There were some of these people who really depended on how active they were. But like Angel Cano, who could do a lot to get what you needed, and you know, in some most a lot of cases, they were successful. I would say, you know, that wasn't, you know, in grand scale, but at least there was some sense that someone was out there and could bargain for them. And I think I think I see something kind of like deeper than than not being stateless and having the support of the Mexican government is kind of like how and why they're turning to the Mexican government because if you recall like the story of Rafael Androve who also used the help of the Mexican mm -hmm. government to kind of like get his kids to be able to attend the white school that was more of like on the basis of I deserve to be considered like to be treated like a white person type of thing. Whereas I think here it's more of like I'm rejecting like this outright discrimination. It mm -hmm. wasn't like them trying to say, you know, we're compatible with whiteness or anything like that. It was just kind of like this is discrimination. Whereas I yeah. think in the case of Rafael Androve and um, it was more like, I'm not not calling it discrimination. It was just like, hey, actually, I should be allowed to go to this school too, or like my kids should be allowed to go to this school too. I I feel like here it's more, more explicitly calling out, hey, this is discrimination, and you can't discriminate, like these workers. And now we're gonna take some time to thank our sponsors. This podcast was produced by Ricky Hurtado, Eric Valera, and Julie M. Wise with generous sponsorship from the Whiting Foundation, the University of Oregon College of Arts and Sciences, and Latinx Ed. And of course, all edited by Dorian Gomez. All right. Uh, so I remember one winter. Uh, it might have been like two years ago um, where uh, I had this one friend who I went to work with uh, at this like soccer camp. Um, and like we had to come in the winter because there was like indoor activities with, like music and stuff at this church. <laughs> and um, I had a ride uh, like before that had broken down like before winter started. So he was the one driving me to the church and stuff. And I'd never seen his car before. And um, he he's my friend and he's from like Guatemala. Um, and I said, like, what does your car look like on the phone? And he said, like, this is the most Hispanic thing you've <laughs> ever seen. And I'm like, what does that mean? Um, and then he shows up and I see I see this like uh, it's a Honda Civic, um, like from 1997. It has like classic. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and, and I want to say it was green and I really want to say it was green. But I can't because it's it was also like red, like a red hood. <laughs> and like as he was like circling around the driveway each rim had like uh, each wheel had a different like rim and they all like different sizes and different like makes um and i thought like is that you outside the house and like yeah can't you tell and um uh i go outside 
and uh, I get in the car and like it is so cold in that car uh, because it's like late uh, December. I'm like, where's the AC? I'm like, I told you this is the most Hispanic car you've ever seen. Um, so there's no heater. No, no heater at all. <laughs> and like, um, so uh, I'm asking like, what else is like, what did, what makes this Hispanic or Latino? And I'm like, well, this is it. Like, this is <laughs> this is all I had. And it wasn't like, um, it wasn't anything dramatic. Uh, getting to the church, except that like halfway there, uh, passing around like Roxborough, um, the car breaks down. Oh. And like, uh, and we didn't have AC at all, so like I wasn't complaining that much. Um, and but like the radio is still playing, and like um, of course it was like an on an aux cord, and like Suavemente was playing by Elvis Crespo, and like there we were just sitting, and I'm like, dude, you were right. <laughs> this is uh, and then we just like sat there. Um, until we decided to like go out, push the car and then like we left it there, um, and just like walked to church. <laughs> yeah. Was okay. it stick shift though? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It was? I'm like, yeah, it was a stick shift and like, uh, he barely knew how to, <laughs> like, <laughs> That's why it broke down. <laughs> yeah, like, um, like, uh, and like his, his dad tried fixing it. And he claims he claims that he learned how to drive stick from his dad. But like, uh, you know, with like a lot of us, when we want to like learn something, um, like it's like, oh, you're too young right now. You're way too young. Mm. Um, and then like when you're grown up, you're like, you should already know how to do this. Yeah. So, so like, you never actually learn. Yeah, yeah. So he faked it like up until that moment, um, and it was like a weird flex uh, in the beginning when he was driving stick because I was surprised. I'm like, is the car supposed to be making those noises? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's standard. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah. um, so earlier, Axel, you had mentioned that, <clears throat> um, undocumented worker- workers, uh, moving onto these farms were like undermining the control that the Mexican government had over, um, these farm owners. Uh, so when you talked about things like, um, uh, like the social mobility that um, that Mexican immigrants deserved and what they wanted to enter, like white spaces, is that what they got in the end? And was it worth it? Or... Well, you mentioned, um, like, I think it, you, Brian brings up an important point about, you did mention that undocumented workers kind of like coming up, coming up like in the book as this force that, undermined the Mexican government's authority because it's kind of like if they blacklisted like the farms the, the farmers and said you know you can't hire like braceros anymore because you're not treating them the right way and you're not upholding um, your side of the contract then these farmers were like okay no big deal because now we have this other source of labor like yeah. the un- an undocumented workforce yeah and, um, and I mean we, we, we see that today uh we see that today in, in in like not in that immigrants or undocumented immigrants are undermining labor but that undocumented immigrants have very little i guess resort to getting any retribution from abuses from anything that happens to them um i will share an example when i had the opportunity to be in in, in tucson for a summer and 
it's a different setting it's you know it's a <laughs> it's a much heavier hispanic or immigrant population over there than what we see here in the south but nonetheless there are some experiences that are similar especially if you have certain people who have power uh have the control over jobs and and be the employers and other peoples who have very little power be the ones who have to work for them um and i just remember i was working at a kind of place a derechos humanos place and every now and then there would be various different calls that would come in and a lot of times it was about people calling in hey i've been working with this person for like two weeks um i just came i, I called them and they didn't answer and then the, i called them again they answered they said they weren't going to pay me uh and just that again and again and it and you would see that and you know as someone who's undocumented and let's say that organization didn't exist who do you call um i remember talking to a friend he was i was telling him about these different calls that would be coming in and he was like oh yeah that happened to my dad like so many times working in houston working in construction so you know it's something that you know, started kind of at that point when we had these braceros, uh, farm laborers coming in and they, they had some level of presentation. But once there's a new population, which was fairly large, uh, started coming in as substitute labor, then there was, it undermined that right to say, all right, we're not going to give you workers until you do things right. Uh, and we see that today. I mean, and it's hard. No, definitely. And I think that navigating those issues of like unfair, um, un unpa- like not unfair wage um, wages and unfair like working conditions, discrimination, like in the workplace is something that I've grown up kind of like having to interpret <laughs> for. So as an interpreter for people back like in rural North Carolina, where I'm from, having to go with, like, la tía de la prima de la vecina, you know, like, and saying, like, yeah, sure, I'll go with you and help you interpret, like, this conversation between, like, you and your boss, and I'll show up, and it turns out that the conversation is about um, the 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 person feeling like like they're not being paid enough for, you know, all the work that they're putting in. Like, they're kind of, like, working themselves to the point where they're giving it their all they're kind of like exhausted at the end of the work week and they're getting paid minimum wage and they deserve that they should be paid more because what they're putting in is worth more and that's not like your classic like typical um definition of wage theft but whenever i interpret these conversations for people like that like it's kind of like they they do feel like they're being robbed of wages that they deserve and in reality like I, I would agree. I would say that it is a more like insidious way of wage theft because it's like knowing that you can get away with paying them the bare minimum because they can't, you know, um, collectively like bargain or organize like um, uh, or uh, like to to fight for more like a, a, a wage that's more reflective of like their work or even what just a deserve. living wage. Yeah, what they deserve. Yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, one of the, the points from this, this story about the abraceros in the around 1940s, 1950s is that, you know, there was, there was exploitation. And this was, you know, they came in as substitute for black labor. And in a way, they, <laughs> they were coming into this space where they were either substituting labor <laughs> that was, you know, historically uh, hard 
historically kind of uh, oppressed, and we're still dealing dealing with some of that stuff. And and really, the distinction here is that for a period of time, there was a a, a level of representation and a level of accountability brought by the Mexican government, it, it, which dwindled later. But for some time, it existed. And and the question is, you know. What about now? Uh, let's say with immigrants or undocumented immigrants, do we do we feel that we have these rights? Do we? Um, is there a perception that we just have to take whatever conditions we're in, um, or that you know if we do something or say something that there's retaliation? Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, just with the experience of like someone having to turn to like a high school like teenage girl like what I went through like having people have to turn to me to kind of like navigate those situations I would say no <laughs> like I don't know Brian uh yeah I was actually gonna ask sort of the same question like um what does this constant wage theft uh and treatment like do to someone's mentality like um are we trusting of the governments that our families came from uh can we still resort to them for help um <clears throat> For those of us who have, like, growing families, what are kids thinking when they see, like, their parents, um, like, uh, working for two weeks and being gone for most of the day and then coming back without, like, any payment at all? You know, that, that, that's kind of really interesting because, let's see, not only is it about how your, how <coughs> your parents may see their own government and, I guess from your experience, do any of them trust the Mexican or Honduran. Hello, hello. <laughs> okay, so so but then it's also this construction of like how someone a young person <coughs> who is who is a, who is a US citizen or who came in, you know, at a young age kind of grows up understanding that just as their parents had weren't able to receive any, you know, re- retribution from like the government officials or the institutions of this country of the United States, then, you know, would you as a citizen go to the United States and say at the government and say, Hey, you know, I, I require this or like I should be getting this. Do we see this country as, you know, kind of one that represents us and helps us? Well, to be honest, as a, as a U.S. citizen and kind of like having had to take on the role of, um, negotiating these relationships between employers and employees that, you know, are undocumented, I would say that it's weird because you would think that, like, growing up with, like, my parents distrusting, like, the Mexican government and seeing, like, this distrust of government in general from, like, the immigrant community that, like, I grew up in might lead me to also be distrustful of, gov- of government. And while I-, I wouldn't say that that's not, like, the case I think I have grown up seeing, like, this side, this different side of government and policy that, like, allows me to see, like, the way in which it can have these very real consequences in people's lives. I would say that at the same time, I do feel not only empowered, but kind of, like, um, responsible for taking on that role of saying, like, hey, this is not only what I require, but this is kind of, like, what my tia and my neighbor and my tia's prima's neighbor whatever like this is what we all deserve and require so it's kind of like yeah growing up maybe with those like sentiments does impact you in a way but at the same time I think for me it's made me kind of like have 
to take on this role of saying like stepping up and saying hey (coughs) these are my rights and i know that even as undocumented people Mm -hmm. they have rights too and kind of like having to take on that that role so we have to we 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 in a sense have to create that as just the people here not tied to nationality like the braceros in arkansas had with the mexican government but tied to it's a, it's a, it's been a process to get to that point because for so many years and, and maybe it, maybe it is the youth like you're saying that is doing a bit more and maybe it is previous youth that has been doing some of that work but um it's it, it's taken a while yeah uh a huge group that um faces this these pressures all the time would be first generation students uh and it's not just like pressures that they feel at home uh there are groups out there that would label them like the belligerent and derogatory term of anchor baby and it's terrible term yeah (laughs) we did not i that's not i wouldn't that term it's yeah we condemn it but we understand yeah yeah yeah, it's totally (laughs) it's totally uh a weird and controversial thing um because like uh aside from like the whole responsibility thing I do also feel like somewhat guilty that like uh, since I'm considered since I am a U.S. citizen, um, there are many people in my family that do not like benefit from any of the rights that I could be like offered mm-hmm. at all. Um, <clears throat> and uh, growing up sort of kind of like sheltered from all the things um, that like the rest of my family members are facing being undocumented. Uh, I, I have that whole like you got to step up thing. Um, when it comes to, like, getting a good job, getting this education. Um, and my mom sort of, like, romanticizes the whole idea that, like, just because I am a U.S. citizen, mm-hmm. like, I can get these things. And, mm-hmm. like, uh, it's been a whole process of me having to learn that, like, hey, uh, just because you have a birth certificate, that isn't your, like, VIP pass to, like, all of these things. Um, which is, like, well, such a bummer. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... Um, what do you mean like what do you mean by like just because you have a birth certificate doesn't mean that this is like your past like are you trying to say like uh, how different birth certificates from like different countries have different weights or like what what do you mean so um (laughs) the whole vip pass thing um my mom has never spoken to me about any honduran government uh in her time there um it's always been like hey you're too young to learn about this uh but um, it's basically like because I'm in the U.S. Uh, and I have a birth certificate for North Carolina, um, my Social Security card means something. Uh, it is easier for me to get a license. Um, like if I want to go out and buy a house one day, I don't have to go through like 100 other steps. I don't have to ask someone like, hey, because I'm undocumented, can I still do this? Uh so it sort of like boils down to that um where even though like it well it is like a thousand six hundred miles away uh like for me when i uh when i need a government to turn to to answer any questions because i'm a u.s citizen i could get answers right here and have someone to like fall back on sort of yeah mm-hmm. no I, I feel you and 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 in what you in what you said there's also like a a sometimes Sometimes you you have access to those. Sometimes when you have when you're able to have that voice, 
and, mm. and it's it's a challenge for even those who you know amongst immigrant communities and families who who are the you know the young children who are eventually born there's like this hope that they'll be okay because they they're in they they have the foot in they're they're born here and they'll be okay because uh, no one's going to be able to kick them out but you know similar kind of tying this back to the story that we were talking about in Arkansas you know even sometimes having that let's say for example the the consul saying oh we we do not tolerate you discriminating against our you know Mexican nationals and Mexican citizens and maybe them getting something and maybe being able to access some restaurants or access some movie theater um at the end of the day they weren't they still didn't belong to that space they were still kind of off to the side and so for ex- what you're saying with with US citizens you may have technically full citizenship in the kind of legal term by being born here but you you mentioned anchor baby that goes into what's happening mm. today they say oh do undo- children of undocumented immigrants even deserve to be citizens mm-hmm. so like you're never fully part of this space even if you have kind of all the boxes checked off and i think that's something that's reflective of kind of like the strategy that um these immigrants in the arkansas delta um were using to kind of like access like these restaurants and like public like white spaces it was a lot of yeah we were gonna fight to access these spaces because we have rights as like human beings as citizens of of mexico Mexico. yeah um but they weren't integrating themselves fully to you know like white social circles so i think like what you're saying here it's kind of like with brian's example of like yeah he's a u.s citizen he and he has rights by virtue of that legally because he rejects like that discrim like discrimination but even like he he's been called like an anchor baby and it's like what what does that mean for his um affinity and like to like other like white social circles and stuff like that uh so um seeing as like back to our history in the book uh angel cano was like this champion for mexican immigrants uh and this was like a whole decade before the civil rights act 1964 um where there's certain things that he had to like give up um in being like this council member uh now that he had all the consequences of these immigrants behind him as well or kind of like what were the repercussions of um mexico trying to stand up for these bracero workers is stand like for is we've i think we've seen like standing up for like their rights has kind of like come back to kind of like hurt them in a in a, in a way so we have like the undocumented like work workforce coming in and farmers being able to take advantage of that so it's kind of like how do you balance and this on ever like ever present like need to strategize how you're going to i guess survive and make your way how you're going to fight for access to certain things while maintaining i guess who you are deciding who you're going to um affiliate with what strategy you're going to take to pursue access to those things in the uh, instance of um angel cano he wasn't an immigrant himself but rather you know the mexican bureaucrat that was like the embodiment of the mexican government in the states yeah and i i 
really, you know, in regards to his relationship and in regards to standing up for, I guess, uh, his people, there's there's a underlying issue of power and, and, and who had more power. And, and really, this is between U.S. and the Mexican government. And it extends to the U.S. and any other Latin American country or kind of territory that, you know, at the end of the day, there was an agreement between Mexico and the U.S., but this may not have been equal. And, you know, when you try to form some accountability and you have certain populations who have more say, like, let's say, for example, the farmers and these communities and these local governments, state governments that didn't want someone intervening with, you know, how they ran their system, then what you have is retaliation. And ultimately, the Mexican government's role just disappeared and if we think about it today we wouldn't even have considered that they were actually a thing <laughs> or that they were present at the table ever mm-hmm. um what we hear now is oh they're gonna have to pay for some wall because of course the u.s is just supposed to bully everyone right mm-hmm. um so yeah so it's definitely something to look at in terms of the history of what has happened and specifically when there has been actual labor brought to the U.S. by these two governments and the responses in different locations, the responses by different government officials. The responses of farm workers, these were farm workers that wanted some rights. They were fighting against these terrible conditions. So, uh, closing remarks. Uh, tell us what you think about Angel Cano. Um, what does this representation mean to you? Uh, can you see yourself contacting uh, the government of any other country or even your own for this kind of help? Thank you for listening, and let us know what you think about this episode. Please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and like our Facebook page. All the links are in the description below. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.